Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. The Lord is moving mightily across our nation. Florida State won three games in a row. They were about to demote us to high school, and then we just back on top. God is the redeemer of all things. Hallelujah. We'll start in verse 21 this week. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come expectant. Lord, we come to honor your word, your, your written word. Paul said it's, it's God's breath to us. So, Lord, we ask that you would nourish our souls as we sit before it today. As we study it, we apply our minds, our hearts, our spiritual ears to hear what you have to say. Lord, let there be a fresh fear of the Lord that settles upon this congregation, that settles upon our children and grandchildren. We ask for generations to come who walk loyally before you, faithfully to you, in a manner worthy of Christ Jesus. Lord, turn this community upside down with the power of the gospel, we pray. We ask for redemption and wholeness. And we ask that we would leave this place today better disciples of Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, as we turn to Colossians chapter 1... I thought this week that it's important that we as 21st century Christians recover the biblical concept of original sin. There is a biblical and historic theological understanding of original sin that is largely being denied today. But Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That sin came into the world through one man, the first man, Adam. David would go on to say in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Augustine in the 4th century really solidified the doctrine of original sin. And so some will call it a doctrine that's, that's birthed from Augustine. But it's not so. It was a clear line of thought in all of Paul's argumentation. The idea of original sin, again, is being denied today, not because there is any coherent or logical argument against original sin, just because it is very popular to deny anything that's been accepted historically. We, I, 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 want, I want to say this, um, I, I'm getting I'm getting pessimistic and negative already. It's my spiritual gift. Okay, it's just, it's just the way God God anointed me with this. Um, I want to say this: pop culture Christianity is not going to last much longer. Okay, pop culture culture Christianity cannot and it will not sustain a people through hardship. And I'm not I'm not prophesying doomsday. I'm just saying that some things are coming where where trendy, light-hearted Brad calls it Christian light um, is not going to work. We we are not after pop culture Christianity. We're after biblical, historic, orthodox faith that sustained the saints for two thousand years. Um, I was thinking this morning. There's our first ministry job. There was a uh, a man who was still preaching. He was over a hundred years old. He still read his sermons because that's what you did in the day. You wrote out your entire sermon and you read the entire sermon. And I'd rather listen to that man in his five piece suit read out his entire sermon than ninety four percent of what happens in modern Christian pulpits. Okay, like there there is a doctrine. There there is there is a 
biblical Christianity that has sustained the saints for generations that will sustain us in the days to come. I'm okay, okay? I, I don't want to wear a five-piece suit. I've told you this a hundred times. It's uncomfortable. I, did, I took my shirt in for the solid first year and a half I was at this church. We're beyond that now, okay? You're lucky I'm not wearing a hat. My wife says to me last week, you need to shave your beard. I said, the church doesn't like it when I shave my beard. They like it long and sloppy. I, okay, I'm okay with modern worship. I'm okay with modern sound and style. Oh, I'm, I'm okay with, I don't have an opinion with any of that. I'm just saying that that's not what sustains us. That's not what's going to carry us through the hardship that whether you're ready to face it or not is knocking at our door. So the, the, the concept of original sin is fundamental to historic Christian faith. It's fundamental to the gospel, and we need to make sure that we recover it and understand it, can articulate it. It is the one aspect of the gospel that is, without a doubt, empirically provable. Okay, so uh, I can't tell you how many times, not a ton, but a few times, I've been in gospel conversations with people trying to share my faith, and, and I've said something like, well, scripturally speaking, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and so every man, woman, boy or girl, we're, we're sinners. And I've had people say to me, you don't really believe that, do you? You believe that kind of old-timey Christianity, we're all sinners? And I'll always say back with the, all the grace and kindness in my voice, do you know anyone who's not a sinner? This is the one aspect of the gospel presentation that is empirically true. Who you want to talk about? Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your best friend? Do you know anyone that is not innately ate up with sin outside of God's grace? Now, of course, we're throwing away an entire framework of morality, and that's a whole other problem. So we need to firm up our conviction and to recognize that without an understanding of universal sinfulness of humanity, we have no need for the atonement of the cross, right? Like that the idea of original sin is that all have fallen short, that in Adam, humanity fell. And because of that falling, there's a great chasm that's between us and God now. There's a great separation between us and the Father because biblically speaking, our God is totally, radically, zealously holy. He's unable to sin. All that he does is good. He's the definition of perfection. He is impeccable in his righteousness and justice. He's perfect. And then the biblical definition of humanity is you're fallen. You are bound by sinfulness ate up with selfish desire. You are riddled with disease. You are in your thought life totally self-consumed and self-absorbed. So we have this impeccably holy God in a wonderfully, the, the biblical, the theological term would be depraved, a totally depraved humanity. And there, there's a great gap. And that gap, that worldview gap between God and man is what creates the nice, neat platform for something called the gospel. In church, when you no longer recognize the gap between God's impeccable holiness and our total depravity, then you have no need for the cross. And you could just keep on encouraging one another to, to live better, to be happy, to be healthy and whole, have a better marriage. You just keep on going on with your shallow theology and your, your self-centered teaching, and you're ignoring the fact that, scripturally speaking, we need the blood of the Lamb to purify us, to cleanse us, so that the gap would be brought together in Christ. 
The gospel doesn't make any sense. And, and without the understanding that we are sinful, and there's something in modern Christianity that wants to say to the world, you're okay. And the Bible is saying, like, no, you're not. <laughs> but we're not honest or biblical. And so we have no need for the gospel. We're, we're perfectly fine with the largest church in America being all about you being a better you. And we've just, I'm, I'm just trying to say, that's not going to work. It's not going to sustain your children. It doesn't provide a, a coherent worldview. It, it, it resolves us of having any real gospel responsibility or need to preach the gospel or need to repent and turn. And without a need to preach the gospel and a need to repent and turn, without a need to, 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 to bring the gap, to close the gap based on the blood of Christ, without that, there's really no future hope of redemption. So if I'm never saying to my children and grandchildren, we are a broken people. Humanity is broken. We're broken sexually. We're broken in regards to the way that we deal with our finances, the way that we speak with people. We have a tendency towards bitterness, and, and we are angry in our hearts. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful, Jeremiah says. If I never teach my children that, that look, humanity is broken, then I can never have a conversation about what the kingdom of God looks like. Because there's a contrast, biblically, of, of what we're called to. We're called to be kingdom people, people of restoration. But what's the need for restoration if nothing's broken? Why would we need reconciliation if there's no such thing as separation? Why would we need to emphasize holiness if we're throwing away every concept of morality? It's not coherent. It's not logical. It's not helpful. So as we turn to Colossians chapter 1 today, we're going to return to basic gospel principles. And I understand that in our church culture today, we've been taught that church is here to entertain you and that basic gospel principles aren't always entertaining. I get that. I don't care. <laughs> right? Like we, I, and, and, and our pulpits, in our, in our teaching, in our small groups, we've got to get back to the place where, where we're not so concerned with what's entertaining. We're concerned with what's healthy. Right? What's, what's sustainable? What brings growth and strength to our children and future generations? So let's turn to Colossians 1, and we're going to talk about the gap, the chasm that exists between God's holiness and our fallenness, and the only hope of closing that chasm, of being brought near to God, which is Christ on the cross, Christ resurrected from the grave. Hallelujah. Caleb, that's good preaching. Ooh, if I could say so myself. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21. We're just going to read through verse 23 today, but there's a lot of pact in these this few lines. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now, 
quickly, I know I'm going to make you guys so tired of hearing this, but it just matters when you approach, specifically when you approach an epistle. Let's talk about occasion. Everyone say occasion. Remember the context of what's happening as Paul writes to the church at Colossae. We've said, and it seems clear from studying Acts, from studying Philemon, from studying the life of Paul, what seems clear is at this point in Paul's life, he's at prison in Rome. And Epaphras, a disciple of Paul, who most likely heard the gospel preached at Ephesus, now comes to Paul as he's in prison at Rome and says, look, I I preached the gospel to a people at Colossae. There was a church planted at Colossae, but now these people are going after false teaching and false doctrine. And so Paul didn't plant the church, the Colossians church, but he's now going to write to them and bring apostolic authority and biblical teaching pure teaching in order to bring correction to a people who are beginning to go astray. Now, what we've said is that one of the way you build occasion for epistles is you read the entire epistle and you try to pick up cues on what Paul's really talking about. So, for instance, when you read the book of Galatians, it becomes really clear that Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, who's dealing with a teaching that says you must be circumcised in order to be saved, or you must be a Jew before you can be a Christian. You can pick that up through the, through the language of what Paul says throughout the entirety of the epistle. And so when we study the scriptures, we don't want to just grab one line and try to build something out of it without reading the entire point of what's happening here. The letter is an entire piece that you should read together. And so from Colossians 2.18, we start to form the occasion. We start to understand why Paul is writing to these people at this time. So Paul says in Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. So look, there are some people at the church at Colossae who are insisting on asceticism. And the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous minds. They don't hold fast to the head, from whom the whole joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So what we learn from Colossians 2.18 is that there's, there are people who are trying to disqualify the church by leading them into asceticism, worship of angels, going on and on about their own visions, and they're not holding fast to Christ and growing up into Christian maturity. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul says to the church at Colossae, there are some people who are leading you towards asceticism and the worship of angels. They're not leading you towards Christian maturity growing up into the head. I write to you today so that you would grow up into the head. It's my call to present you mature. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. So again, we're building occasion. We learn here from Colossians 2.8 that they are bringing deceit and philosophy, human ideas and traditions, and they're again not encouraging the church to grow up into Christ. So now we've found through the introduction of the letter and the conclusion of the letter and by skimming the contents of the letter that Paul is writing to a church that's beginning to go after false doctrine, particularly the idea of asceticism or worship of angels, a heightened spirituality. The concept, again, we've, we've had to say this a few times. Let me just say it really quick. The concept of Gnosticism, which seems to be settling in, the very early onsets of Gnosticism that seems to be settling in here, are, they're the ideas like, I can be more spiritual if I never eat meat. I can be more spiritual and achieve secret knowledge if I live celibate. And Paul is saying to the church, that's not growing up into Christ, right? Christian maturity is not refusing basic biblical sexuality in the context of marriage 
Biblical maturity, Christian maturity, is learning to love your wife as Jesus loves the church. Biblical Christian maturity is, is gazing into the eyes of Christ, learning to be enamored with him and him alone, refusing to turn from your first love, and growing into his own likeness. The idea of sanctification is that we are more and more being set apart to look like him. Paul says you can't be a mature Christian if you're not talking about Christ. You can't be a mature Christian if you're allowing peripheral side doctrine to lead you astray into these hyper-spiritual ideas. He's saying to the church at Colossae, let's get serious about Christian maturity as we get serious about gazing fully onto the face of Christ Jesus. And so last week, we opened with the... Remember we said that, that epistles just like the way that we write emails today, they come in a format. And so epistles always have an introduction. I, Paul, am writing to you, the church at Colossae, to encourage you. I, I pray for you every day. I'm so glad to hear of your faith. They always have an introduction. They always have a body, right? The content, the meat, and then there's always a conclusion. So last week we started the body of the epistle, the meat of the epistle. And Paul started writing to a people who are going astray theologically. The first thing he says is this. Right out the gate. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He is the head of the body, the head of the church. He is the sustainer. He is the finisher. So as Paul starts to write to a people who are going astray biblically, the first thing he says is, let's talk about who Jesus is. And then he says, Jesus is the creator. All things were created for him, through him, and for him, and in him, all things hold together. And then he says, your future is in Christ Jesus. He's the firstborn of the dead, and he will cause this old passing away creation to be renewed and reborn. He says, Christ is your beginning, your sustenance, your finish. The first thing he says to a weak church is, let's talk about Jesus again. So we read last week what's largely believed to be a Christological hymn where Paul, in this poetic fashion, brings doctrine of Christ. He is the fountain of all things. He is the sustainer. He is our perfect Lord. And so now what I want you to see, I said all that to say this, is that as we get to our text today, our text today starts with, and you, so you catch the contrast, for, for six or seven verses, he just talked to us about the exalted, perfect, glorious nature of Christ, and then he turns to the church with a, and you, and so he is highlighting here the chasm which exists between the perfect nature of God, who is the image of the invisible God, the, the sustainer of all things. And then he turns to the church and he says, and you were, what did he say? And you were alienated. And you were hostile in your thinking. And you were evil in your actions. So again, we just went on for seven, eight verses about the beauty and the perfect nature of Christ, the perfection of our Godhead, and then he immediately turns and says, you were alienated, you were hostile in your thinking, and you were evil in your deeds. What did he just say? From the fabric of who you are, you were ate up with original sin. Look, gaze, sure yourself up on the doctrine surrounding the perfection of Christ Jesus, and don't forget who you were alienated. What does alienated mean? Separated, right? By a great chasm. Unable to grab hold of God. 
hostile in thinking. This should make your mind go to Romans 1. If you weren't here when we studied Romans chapter 1, go back and find that sermon series. It's important, very important that you have a grip on Romans 1. So he says, you were alienated from God, separate from God, driven from the Garden of Eden. And because of that alienation, you became hostile in your thinking. Your philosophy, your thought life, your worldview became self-centered and evil. And your teaching and your proclamation and your beliefs, your ideas of who you were as individuals, it's hostile towards God. And then your hostile thinking, your evil philosophy and thought life, it produced wicked living. You following what he's saying? You were alienated from God, hostile in your thinking, evil in your actions. So Paul just took us again from the heights of Christ's glory and then he crammed us down into the depths of total depravity. And he's saying, don't forget about the chasm. Don't forget about the immeasurable distance that exists between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Don't forget about the the immeasurable glory of Christ and the unending wickedness of humanity. Don't forget that there was this chasm, this alienation that existed between you and God. Again, this is basic gospel. Then he says, yet he, so the perfect, impeccable, glorious Christ, fallen, broken, wicked, and hostile humanity, separated, yet he reconciled us in the body of his flesh. What does reconciliation mean? He closed the gap in the body of his flesh. We, I'm I'm mind-boggled as to why modern Western Christianity has not begun to really try to understand the glorious heights of the incarnation. That 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 impeccable, holy God, he, he didn't say to you, Climb the ladder towards me. Fill the gap with your good works. Climb the ladder with your, with your good intentions. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do better, you wicked sinners. No, the, the, the glorious, holy God of the universe, he came to us in, in a body, in sarks, in flesh. The, that that in, in Christ, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Every attribute that belonged to God existed in this man, Christ Jesus. And what the scripture teaches us, in, in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 is that, that Christ in great humility he left his throne in heaven where he was adored and worshipped and he came and put on flesh where he was spit on and mocked and cursed by broken humanity. Can you imagine going from being worshipped by angels to being spit on by men? And in the body of his flesh he reconciled us. Now that, that starts with his incarnation by taking on a fleshy body, but, it, but it's concluded in the cross where when a priest, Old Testament context, when a priest brought a, a goat for sacrifice, um, day of atonement, the priest would lay his hands on the goat and the imagery was that the sin of Israel was now being imputed or given to a goat which would be sacrificed. The goat would be punished for the wickedness of Israel. Does that make sense? Guilt is being transferred as the hands of the priests are laid on the head of the goat. And that imagery follows through to Christ on the cross where Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What did Paul just teach? That he who was perfect wore our sin 
he absorbed my guilt, my personal guilt and our corporate guilt into the body of his flesh. And my guilt was murdered on the cross of Calvary. So then Colossians 2, again, we're trying to build the entire argument that Paul's building. Colossians 2, he's going to say, having been buried with him in baptism. So in baptism, I am buried with Christ. I am identifying with the death of Christ. When I go under the water, I, I, am, I am in a very, very mystical yet spiritual way, identifying myself with Christ's own death so that I would also be raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so my, my guilt, my, my guilt, my condemnation was, was murdered in the body of his flesh. It was buried in the water of baptism. And when I come up out of the water, I am raised with Christ Jesus to new life. I am reconciled through the body of his flesh. He literally wore my guilt, my shame in order to reconcile me so his majesty fills the heavens. His glory can never be measured or contained. I was alienated, wicked in thought and deed. But in the greatest display of selflessness, of mercy, of love ever known, Christ closes the gap by first taking on flesh and then receiving in the body of his flesh my punishment. The, the wounds inflicted on his back belong to me. The blood that dripped through his veins, through, through gaping wounds, that, that's what I deserve. The crushing of his skull with the crown of thorns, that's what I deserve. The pierced hands, that's, that's the punishment for my guilt, my transgressions, my condemnation. He absorbed it in his body. in order to reconcile me so that there would be no chasm between myself and God. And so today I stand fully loved, fully adored, fully cherished. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. No height, depth, width, or breadth can separate me from God's perfect, wild, intentional, omnipotent love. Because Christ closed the gap. In the face of your alienation, in the face of your evil thoughts, in the face of your wicked deeds, in the face of all of your wretchedness, the glorious, unending, majestic God of the universe absorbed your guilt into the body of his flesh in order that you could be reconciled. And the scripture says then that he presents you to the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. So Paul just did something that he loves to do, right? He gave us kind of a, a trinity of our own wickedness. You were alienated, hostile in thinking, and evil in deeds, but today you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. That Christ presents us to the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. What does present mean? That he brings me into the throne room of God and sets me before a holy Father, and as I stand in the presence of God, I am holy, blameless, and above reproach, meaning that the accuser and the condemner, they have no, no room to argue. They have nothing to say. 
You could have the best lawyer in all of the universe stand before God and try to argue me, but I'm above reproach. You've got nothing to point at. You've got nothing to cling to. You've got no evidence. It's all been destroyed on the cross of Christ. The record of my sinfulness have been done away with. It's been nailed to the cross, Paul said. So, you see what Paul did there? You were, again, alienated, hostile, and evil, but today he presents you to the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. You were separated, but he brought you near to present you to God. This is the work of Christ Jesus. From here, in, in, in context of everything that's happening in the epistle, I'd like to read you a quote from good old-fashioned John Calvin and all of his witty snarkiness. Um, Calvin says, in regard to our text today, the general doctrine which he has set forth, he now applies particularly to them that they may feel that they are guilty of very great ingratitude if they allow themselves to be drawn away from Christ to new inventions. What did Calvin just say? He said, what Paul is doing here to the church of Colossae, who is again going after false doctrines. They're talking about visions of angels and their own spirituality. He's saying to the church at Colossae, how ungrateful are you? You sit around talking about your own spirituality. You sit around bolstering up one another and talking about your own visions and how, how great you are. How ungrateful. Shouldn't you be talking about Christ? Shouldn't you be living thankful for the God who closed the gap in the body of his flesh? In a, in a very, very gracious and pastoral way, Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, you are ungrateful. You have forgotten the gift of God towards us in Christ. Why aren't you living in the joy of jubilee as you remember that your sins are totally forgiven? Remember Jesus heals ten lepers and then he says, only one returned to me thankful? I think that that concept could, could certainly have been said of churches today. I think, I think you could say to churches, why are you not grateful? Why is the heartbeat of your church not thanksgiving and joy? Why is the spiritual tenor of your church not thank you, Christ Jesus, for bearing my guilt and presenting me to the Father holy and blameless? Why, why is the song of your church not worthy, worthy is the Lamb? Why are you talking about your own spirituality and giftings and how you can fulfill your personal callings and you can prosper? Why are you, why are you talking about, uh, about, about personal achievements as if that's what life's about? Why are you not talking about the Lamb of God that was slain so that you could be reconciled to the Father? Why are you not talking about the chasm being filled with the goodness and the mercy of Christ Jesus? Why are you so unthankful, ungrateful. So what Paul just showed us in his writing to the church at Colossae, that spiritual immaturity is forgetful. That spiritual immaturity lacks thanksgiving. That spiritual immaturity starts when you forget to remind your heart of your own position, your own place of, of deserving judgment, yet in the goodness of Christ being transformed to the posture of holy, blameless, and above reproach. You want to be a mature church, Paul says to the church at Colossae, get grateful. You want your worship to be full and robust, get thankful. You don't mature beyond basic gospel presentations. You only mature to love it more. You, you hear what I'm saying? I think so many times we want to say, I get the gospel, what's next? 
And, and, and that's not the case. We get the gospel, then we go deeper. We get the gospel, and then we love it more. We get the gospel, and, and then we see a, a fresh glimpse of Jesus' goodness, and we bow, and we worship with a deeper reverence. I, I am constantly growing in my own infatuation with Christ Jesus and the cross of Christ. And Paul says, now that's spiritual maturity. Quit talking about your visions, Paul says. Quit talking about your asceticism. Quit talking about angels. Why are you talking about angels as if angels are the ones that close the gap? No, Christ. Now I'm sweating. That's your fault. The last thing he says, and we'll get ready to close, is he, he kind of drops this conditional clause. Now there's 18 hours of theological debate we could have about this clause, where he says that you will be presented to the Father holy on the last day, blameless and above reproach, if there's the kind of conditional clause, if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Now, historically, the Reformed Church would, would, call, would call this perseverance of the saints. And the, the Reformed idea is that everyone who is truly born again perseveres unto the end. And so they'll, that perspective will quote 1 John 2.19, where John writes this. John says, they went out from us. He's talking about the church. There were some who left the church, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, if they were really saved, they would have persevered. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not at all of us. So the question, uh, from the Reformed perspective, the emphasis is that everyone who is truly born again will persevere on the basis of the gift of the Holy Spirit, will persevere until the end. What we don't want to embrace is, okay, golly, I'm trying not to be too doctrinal here, but I have the microphone again and you don't, so... Um, there's a great, I think there's a great danger in what we call hyper-Calvinism. Um, but there's also a great danger in hyper-Wesleyanism or hyper-Arminianism. If we embrace this concept of like, you've got to get saved every week. Like you said a cuss word and so you need to come to the altar and get saved again because you lost your salvation. Like that's also very dangerous and fickle too, right? Like once and for all, Christ washed me and cleansed me. And so we don't want to embrace this perspective that says every time you mess up, you just lost your salvation and you better get down and grovel, right? Like we, we repent, we move forward, we love God, and we persevere on. Um, that would be a hyper-Westland perspective. But at the same time, I, I lean, I'm, I'm allowed to lean for the, for the record, I lean more towards the, the concept of perseverance of the saints, which says that Christians true Christians will persevere. And that when we see individuals who seem to have walked away from their faith, it's my, I, I lean more towards First John, and, and I would say they probably weren't saved to begin with. Because I don't really think you can see the beauty of Christ and just walk away. I think you could see the church. I think you could be involved and around a church and walk away, but I don't think you could really see the beauty of Christ and have the Holy Spirit and walk away. That, that's definitely my leaning. On the other hand, um, that, I think that's normative. The normative Christian perseveres. On the other hand, the New Testament does give us here these warnings of apostasy, where he says, he says there is a clause. If you persevere, you will be presented holy and blameless. Jesus says, uh, Jesus says you, you must persevere to the end. And so I do think that the warnings of apostasy should create some kind of reverence in the church. 
right? So we don't want to embrace this concept of like we're falling in and out of salvation all the time. We want, to, we want to trust the word that no one can pluck me from the hands of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding me. But at the same time, I want to hear the warning, and I want to acknowledge that, that my will has to submit to the will of the Spirit that is leading me. And, and so I think, I, I would argue, that apostasy is not normative. You guys know what I mean by apostasy, falling away from faith. I don't think it's normative or common, but I do think that the warnings of apostasy should create some kind of holy fear in us, and I, I think that apostasy may be possible. But again, hear me saying, I'm not saying it's normative. I'm not saying that if you yelled at your wife last night, you need to get saved again. So you probably should apologize. Um, but we do want to see that Paul tells the church here at Colossae, who is, who is they're flirting with false doctrine, right? They're flirting with... Um, uh, asceticism and the worship of angels and Gnosticism. They're flirting with this hyper-spirituality, and Paul says, you, you better persevere. Um, I, I think it's helpful for us to hear that, to consider what it means to persevere, and then to, to build our church and our homes and our teaching and our leading in such a way that our end aim is perseverance. We're not after um, hot, flashy f- faith. Sometimes in, oh, so critical, forgive me, Lord, um, in, in the kind of what, what I'm going to call today pop culture Christianity that we have in the West, sometimes what we're after is quick growth, quick, give, give me the now, the, the bigger the church, the more successful the church. And what, what history says is, is that, that, that successful churches are successful for generations, Right? We are at, here at this church. We are not trying to just build a flashy, quick thing that happens here and now. We're, we're after rooted, grounded, historic faith that we pass on to our children, and then they pass on to their children. And I say all the time, what, what, if I could lay my head, and what would be success is 100 years from now, there's still someone standing on this property teaching faithfully the scriptures with sound doctrine and conviction, like, like generations and generations of pure Christianity. That's success, not flash, not flash in the pan. And so when we consider perseverance, right, the concept that we have to persevere, then we start thinking, okay, we could, we could, we could lead our families in a way that, that feels quick, and we could, we could lead our kids, and I'm just getting practical here, we could teach our kids all the worship songs that are trendy right now and that are quick and exciting and they can jump to, and that's good. I don't have any problem with that. But at some point, we also want to teach our kids, like, um, what could wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because there is a longevity to the doctrine that's being presented that will sustain my kids. Right? I'm totally good with them dancing to God is good. That's a beautiful doctrine that will sustain you too. Um, but, I, but I'm not just after what will entertain them the most. I must also be after what will sustain them the longest. You guys hear what I'm saying? And as a church, we want to shape ourselves and mold our ministries and our small groups and the way that I handle the pulpit. Um, our goal is not... What is the most exciting today? Our goal must be what will sustain our children and our grandchildren in the future and, and, and what will help us to persevere in the faith. What Paul just said is what will help you persevere in the faith is getting thankful. That the heartbeat of a spiritually mature people is gratitude, 
I say this to you all the time. Gratitude for the cross produces joy in my life that can't be squelched out by a bad diagnosis. Right? The bad diagnosis can come and threaten my life, but what is life? Paul says, what is death to Paul? To be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. So even the bad diagnosis, although we obviously will pray for healing and believe that God will restore, but even the bad diagnosis, even if it's successful in ending my life, can only bring me face to face with Christ because I'm reconciled. There's a joy in the gospel that transcends every hardship this life has to bring. It doesn't mean that it makes everything easy, but it enables me to persevere through everything. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you'll never have to face sickness. I'm not saying that your spouse will never commit adultery on you. I'm not promising you that your, your marriage is going to be perfect forever, but I am promising you that if you, if you ground yourself in the plain gospel of Christ, you will persevere through it. Hallelujah. Well, if you go ahead and stand to your feet, and Pastor Seth, if you want to come for us, somebody wants to turn down the AC, that'd be cool too. I don't know. I'm just, just talking now. So, so what did we just say? In conclusion, what did we just say? Paul says, you were alienated, you were hostile in thinking, you were evil in your deeds, you were separated from the immeasurable, glorious Christ, but you were reconciled in the body of his flesh, so that he may present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Therefore, Paul says to the church at Colossae, why are you not thankful? Why are you not a people of worship? Why are you not a people who love and celebrate Jesus? Why are you easily distracted? Why are you chasing after peripheral doctrines? Why aren't you grounded in thankfulness, gratitude, and joy? And so from there, what we want to say today is, one, we believe that Christian maturity starts with a sincere thankfulness for the cross. Two, we, bring, we believe that, that the Christian maturity that is founded on gratitude produces joy that trans- transcends every hardship and causes us to persevere. We're after perseverance, right? Anything, any teaching, any small group, curriculum, if, if any emphasis leads us away from our primary focus being Jesus and thankfulness and joy, that emphasis needs to be de-emphasized. That, that's, the, that's the biblical argument that Paul's making here. So when we say yes to Jesus, when we say there's a yes in my heart for eternity, I am saying no to all peripheral distractions. And here, this is very much the covenantal idea of marriage, right? When I say yes to my wife, I'm saying no to all the other women who are chasing me around all day because I'm so handsome, right? Um, that, that never happened. Brad, Brad's ready to, Brad's really tired of that joke. That only makes it funnier. Um, But you know what I'm saying? When I say yes to my wife, I'm saying yes to you and no to everybody else. And this morning, I want to ask you just to ponder for a moment as we close in your heart, has your yes to Christ been the kind of yes that says, I refuse to allow my eyes to go after any other? I refuse to go after false teaching. I refuse to go after teaching that just emphasizes my own um, success, my own prosperity. I refuse to go after teaching that emphasizes my own comfort. 
And instead, Lord, I will allow my eyes to gaze upon teaching and doctrine and songs that call me to lay my life down at the altar. I, I choose to allow the, the tenor of my life to be sacrificial, selfless love for Jesus. I choose to pick up my cross and follow you no matter what comes because I want my heart to burn with holy zeal and holy fire for Jesus and Jesus alone. My, my kind of push this morning is let's let your yes to Jesus be a real yes and let's let our yes to Jesus be filled with thanksgiving and joy that causes us to persevere for generations to come. I want you, if, if that resonates with you at all this morning, I want you just to open your hands right now. So Father, in Jesus' name, if there's anything in our hearts that has distracted or pulled us away, Lord, if our love for you is stale this morning, we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would release a fresh zeal in our hearts, a fresh yes for the gospel of Christ. Lord, let my house say, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. We don't serve the God of comfort. We don't serve the God of prosperity. We don't serve the God of hyper-spirituality. For me and my house, we love Jesus and no one else. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you release a freshness, a fresh intimacy in every heart. If you just stay right there, Seth, would you sing for us just for a moment? Just stay right there. Lord, a 